carry on. What other questions do you have? And let's not forget too much about the meditation part of this. Yeah. I have a question to the meditation part. Okay. When, when one is achieving or mastering the ten steps, like you, and for some reason you couldn't practice every day for a certain amount of time, would you go immediately back into the last stage, or do you have to start again? Uh, no, you'll, depending on how long that you have been away from the practice, you'll, you'll certainly have fallen back, and uh, it, how, how far back will depend on how long you've been away from practice and what's happened in between. But you'll find it comes back pretty quickly. Uh, it's, not, it's not like you're going to have to begin all over with no benefit of your past experience, because you definitely do that. That's a relief. Thank you. What's that? That's a relief. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, there uh, there really isn't, I think, any kind of circumstance where you can't continue to practice mindfulness and to do uh, mindfulness of the breath, you know, in those moments when you're free to do so. And that can go a long way towards uh, overcoming the problems that happen when you don't have a chance to do a formal sitting. So, and there's so much to be gained by the practice of mindfulness in your daily life anyway. So, uh, yeah, I, I would, I would uh, say, try to think in terms that now that you've started to practice, no, uh, the only thing that will change is the form of your practice. You'll not, never stop. It's really a good idea for us to think about, you know, uh, the meditation practice itself and wherever you are in the process. And any questions you might have, anything that we can help you to understand from that vantage point. Yes, we went through the, the different steps, and um, you mentioned that when that's step, step seven, mm -hmm. that then you could go into insight practices. What's the advantage or disadvantage of going through all ten um, stages of shamatha and then doing insight versus um, breaking away at step seven? Oh, okay, good question. All right, so... The question is that uh, because you could take up uh, certain kinds of insight practice at step seven, or there's certain practices that you could take up at stage eight, and so forth, what are the advantages of either doing that or continuing with the samatha practice? Well, a lot of it really depends on the individual and what suits their nature. But another factor, too, is what sort of opportunities present themselves. Um, 
no matter what else you do together with the uh, with this ten stages of samatha practice um, it, it's still a good idea to continue this and as a matter of fact you're likely to find that you do continue developing samatha it's just in the context of another practice because as I said the first night this idea of the being separate practices is more illusion than reality. If we take, for example, the very well-known and popular Vipassana practice in North America that involves uh, noting the rising and fall of the abdomen and noting whatever the mind happens to go to, and that inside practice also progresses through a series of stages. And if we examine the stages of that practice, we find that um, what they call the, the real practice of insight doesn't begin until the yogi doing that practice has the experience called the knowledge of what is and is not the path. Now, if we look in that practice and say, okay, that's interesting. What is knowledge of what is and is not the path? Well, it turns out that that particular stage in the practice is where the yogi now sees very clearly, easily, very clearly the arising and passing away of whatever thoughts or sounds or feelings or the sensations of the rising and falling of the abdomen. Sees them very clearly and easily and in the process of seeing them so clearly and easily and meditating on them, often experiences that the body will feel very light and a strong feeling of joy will arise and they might have an experience of light behind their eyes and so on and so forth. What does that sound like? <laughs> okay. That's what happens in the seventh and the eighth stages of this Samatha practice. So if you went and did this practice and you practice according to the teacher's instructions until you reach the uh, stage of purification by way of knowledge of what is and is not the path, what you would have done effectively is arrived at the seventh, seventh and eighth stages. Well, really about the seventh stage of that practice. In that particular practice, they discourage the joy. And they cause you to practice in such a way that your mind is moving too quickly for joy to arise. And um, so you take a, a, a little bit of a different journey. But then if we look, look what happened, the, the yogi in that path would then go through the stages of <coughs> what are called the, the uh, uh, knowledge of, of uh, 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 knowledge of fear, knowledge of terror, knowledge of disgust, knowledge of, of uh, review and, and determination and so forth. And then they come to something that's called the uh, knowledge of equanimity towards formation. And if we go and we look at the knowledge of equanimity towards formation, very, very powerful concentration. Very, very powerful mind mindfulness. Tranquility and equanimity. And so essentially what's happened is that's the stadium is the 10th stage. So you, you've arrived at the same place by a different route. So now if we look at these side by side and say, okay, well, should I continue? It depends on your opportunity. Should I continue this or should I take up this practice? 
Now, if you are already at the seventh or eighth stage in Samatha practice, and you have an opportunity to do this with Pasana practice, you'll walk into the practice and you'll you'll pick up at the stage you are, and uh, you'll continue to develop in that way. If you reach the uh, knowledge of equanimity towards formation in that practice, then you go back to the Samatha practice. Well, you'll find that you already are pretty adept at ninth and tenth stage Samatha practice. So you see, it stops being so much of an either-or question. You're going to end up pretty much the same way, whichever way you go. Um, I'm just trying to figure out why you would want, not to be glib, but why you would want to go through the knowledge of terror and uh, disgust and that if you can <laughs> take a little sidestep around and oh. not do that particular part of the path. <laughs> I wish I could give you a really good answer to that. There's starting to be more open communication between practitioners of these different methods. And so maybe at some point that will become clear. What people who practice that method in the path have said in the process of claiming that this was the only true path to enlightenment, and that's what everybody said, that this is the only true path to enlightenment, and they said that they would tell their students that well, Samatha practice is dangerous because you get this joy and this happiness and, that's, and, and you think that's it and you think you're enlightened because you have this bliss and, and you never really become enlightened. Whereas this path is much better and much wiser because you abandon the, the joy as soon as it arises and you, <coughs> you go ahead and progress to the insight into, uh, into uh, impermanence and, and suffering. Uh, I think that historically uh, there are probably good reasons for why people favored this particular path. And they will also claim that it is a more rapid path. And I think, you know, considering that very, very few people in the world for many centuries have practiced this stages of meditation, most of the time they haven't. Most of the meditation methods you look at they throw you into the pool and say, learn to swim. Um, very rarely, uh, especially in modern times, has anybody used the stages of meditation approach. And so the, uh, the people that follow the path that involves the fear of uh, the knowledge of fear and, and terror and uh, disgust and so forth have said, this is a much more fast, this is a much quicker path, more rapid faster, more direct. And that may very well be true. If somebody was told, well, first you have to learn Samatha, but they weren't given any of this instruction that you've been given this weekend, they could literally spend years and years not, you know, trying to master Samatha first before they started practicing mindfulness. And then somebody with this other method comes along and says, well, hey, you know, you're wasting your life. You might not become enlightened this lifetime. You'd better switch and do this practice. And they'd be totally right. It would be totally true. So that is one of the things that the teachers in that tradition say is, is this is a faster path. I don't think it's really a faster path compared to the 10 stages. But you don't find people teaching staged meditation 
very much anywhere in the world anymore. It's one of those lost arts that formally, but that fortunately got preserved and carried forward. Yes? A little while ago, we were speaking about um, rites and rituals, and I understood you to say that, you know, people can get hung up with how many times you shake the feather, so to speak. Yes, right. Um, and, you know, that's a real dead end. And what kind of feather it is, and all the, there's yeah. no, no end of things people can get on. No yeah. end to it. Right. Yeah. I, I really am clear about that. But would you speak to um, the benefits of ceremony, of rituals? I mean, in the right way. How, how, yes. how might the ceremony be? and ritual, yeah, they can be very useful. The right way to use them is recognizing that they have no uh, inherent power of their own. They have no efficacy of their own. But the human mind being what it is, we can make use of ceremonies, rites, and rituals to create desirable mental states and to condition the mind in, in a very good way. And so it has tremendous value in that regard, as long as you don't misunderstand, you know, and, and believe. When you when you have the belief that, yeah, and that shaking the feather, that's a really good example. Because if, if I want to put myself in a sacred state of mind, and I do a ritual, either one that I learned, or even if I make up one myself, and I do a ritual because it helps bring me into that sacred consciousness, that open consciousness, that place of compassion or whatever. It's a really good positive thing. But if I get hung up on the idea that it has to be done in a particular way, and it won't work if it's not done that way, but it will work if it's done the right way, and both of those are false. It won't necessarily work done, work just because it's done in a particular way. It has much, much more to do with what's happening in the mind of the person that's doing it. And it's absolutely nonsense that it won't work just because you have the wrong kind of feather or hold it in the wrong hand or shake it the wrong number of times or you know any of these other things. So it's, it's using the nature and characteristics of the human mind. And ritual helps. Ritual's really, really wonderful. I'm encouraging people to take a, uh, to make a deeper commitment to the practice of the Dharma and to really make it the primary focus of their lives. And of course I doubt that any of the people that I'm talking to are going to go to a monastery and take robes. But if you did do that, that is a ceremonial act that that is very powerful in shifting your mind from being a, a person in the world to being a person whose life is totally dedicated to spiritual practice. So I'm also encouraging people who want to make that kind of commitment as a lay person, but let's do the same thing. Let's do, uh, let's perform the ceremony of becoming an upasaka 
and taking the vows of a dedicated lay practitioner. And you may not have to give up everything else you own and move to a monastery, but the ritual act of doing that can have a very powerful effect on your mind so that now you're free to live in a way that you're de totally dedicated to your <coughs> spiritual practice rather than trying to squeeze your spiritual practice in or to balance your spiritual practice against these other things. Now you're once again, you're, you have a single focus in your life. You have, a, you have a direction, you have a purpose. You know where you're going. And you can juggle all the things that you need to juggle much better because you have, you're not trying to go two directions at once. All because we do a 15 or 20 minute ceremony and we chant and take some, um, take some precepts and stuff. That's the power, that's a really valuable power of ritual. One of the things that's interesting is people mistake, people will make meditation into a ritual. You know that belief that, well, if I sit here and watch my breath long enough in just the right way, there will be this lightning bolt from on high, and I'll become enlightened. And that's a belief in a ritual, magic ritual. Because you, it's the work that you do consciously in your own mind that produces the result. It's not, it's not any of the practices you do. They're only tools and means, and they have absolutely no power in themselves. It's, it's the, the changes that you make in your mind as a result of using those tools that will certainly produce the result. Some people, yeah, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I'm back to the lower level. How to use the concept of no self in, in working through difficult emotional states? Well, I like that question. Uh, we're really all of the things that I've already talked to you about are, are all going in that direction uh, anyway. Because when you have when you're experiencing difficult emotional states, the very first thing we do. <coughs> to identify that. And we have this strong experience of, of I, I am this emotion. And so when I encourage you to practice mindfulness by examining these emotions objectively, that really is applying the uh, idea, uh, uh, the concept of no, no self. If you have the thought, this emotion, there's some part of my mind that is producing this emotion. And I'm experiencing it because in my past, uh, in my past behaviors and past experiences, I've conditioned that part of my mind to do it, to do this, when certain triggers arise. And now those triggers have arisen, and now that part of my mind is producing this emotion. This is, this is very much a dissociation of the experience from the concept of self. And it's very, very helpful if you do that. 
when when the sense of self is particularly strong, though, you can, which it sometimes is, you can turn your attention to that sense of self and remind yourself that this this is empty. This is even this feeling of self and this idea of self that I'm experiencing that seems so real. Just to remind yourself that this is a projection of your mind. That that too, there is another part of your mind that's job is to create this image of the self that you are and to tell the story of this self. And so if, if when that has this powerful hold on you, if you can remember to remind yourself that that's what's going on, uh, often that will help. Often that will give you a little more uh, uh, space, a little, a little bigger comfort zone If you, if you can recognize and understand and agree with the idea in general, I'm telling you that you don't have a mind, you have many mental processes that are interacting with each other and sometimes cooperatively and sometimes competitively. Um, that is a part of realizing no self. And the more that you can apply that notion and find that it works. It explains your experience. It, uh, it, it helps you to understand what's happening. To that degree, you are actually cultivating the understanding of no self. So not just when you're experiencing difficult emotions. When you're sitting and meditating and um, one part of your mind wants to do something else, then that too is a reminder that there is no single mind. There's many mental processes. And within all these mental processes, there is no self. And when you find yourself thinking, well, oh yes there is, I'm feeling this, I'm deciding this, I'm doing it. Look at it and see if you can get to that place of, of seeing what's really happening of seeing that your intentions and decisions are arising from some place that you don't have access to, and that it's merely the notion of self coming along after the fact and appropriating those decisions and saying, well, I decided, I want, you know, I will. that would be a healthy way to approach doubt, too, right? Absolutely, yes, doubt. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, it, it's actually easier to realize that fear and anger and strong emotions are not self than it is subtle emotions like restlessness and impatience and things like that. It's the same thing with thoughts. There are other kinds of thoughts that you can recognize, where's that thought coming from? And, and you're separate from it and you don't attach to it. The thoughts of doubt and uncertainty, can they, they, they're the ones that can be harder to realize it. Well, that's just another one of those thoughts. It's no different than you know, thinking about uh, what I'm gonna have for supper tonight. You know? It's some part of your brain trying to solve the problems of your life. And 
doubt usually arises because you're encountering some perceived difficulty or resistance or there's some dissatisfaction present. And so some part of your mind is trying to solve this problem of your life. You know, you're sitting there and say you're meditating and uh, you know, you start to think, oh, maybe maybe this isn't the way I should be practicing. I don't seem to be having as much luck as other people do. And that's that's a very typical example of doubt. Well, I can tell you where that comes from. That all in every day of your life, you set goals and aspirations for yourself. You're saying, I want to do this, I want to achieve this, I want to have this. And then that leads to uh, plans being made in your mind and actions being initiated towards achieving those goals. And then there's some other part of your mind that kind of monitors your process and your progress. And when it signals that progress is good, then the, the, the message goes out to the rest of the system that, you know, whatever we're doing, it's working, it's right, keep on going, and that's really good. But in anything that we do, if, if that uh, auditor part of the mind looks and says, well, you know, we've been doing this for a while and uh, it doesn't seem to be turning out the way that we thought it would. Some other part of your mind says, uh-oh, things are not working the way we should. Alarm button goes on. And then some other part of your mind, whose job is to solve problems, says, okay, what's the problem? Aha, uh -huh, I see. All right, we want this. We're doing that. Well, maybe we should do something different. It's all completely logical. It's just another thought. If you buy into it, and if you sit there, you know, running the thought, then it becomes self-fulfilling. It's not going to work. But there is no thought that you can have, doubt or otherwise, that is not just another thought generated by some part of your mind based on some kind of logic of its own, which you may be able to guess or you may not. And likewise, no emotion. So you're absolutely right. Doubt, doubt's not self. Doubt's just the mind doing its thing. And most of the time, that thing probably is helpful, or at least a lot of the time it's helpful. That's the other thing. All of these things that our mind, minds do, the, the, they exist because they can be useful and they can, can be functional. But as with anything, too much of something can actually uh, have the opposite effect. And in the wrong circumstances, it can produce uh, the wrong result. A person who has too much doubt won't succeed well in the world. They're always paralyzed. They're always changing directions. They're always uncertain. They never quite know what to do. We know people like that. But on the other hand, the most successful people in the world have that same mental faculty that has brought them to question the efficacy of whatever it is they're particularly engaged in. Just in one person, that mechanism was functioning in a way that was beneficial, and the other person it went overboard and ended up interfering with the process. You know, likewise, there's some circumstances where 
it's serving a beneficial purpose, but other purpose, other circumstances where it's best set it, set aside, shut down. You know, it's not helping. No thought is helpful while you're meditating. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of us try too hard when we meditate, but of course there's some people that don't try hard enough. <laughs> I think I've been I've, I've seen an awful lot of people who try too hard. They're they're high achievers. They set high goals <coughs> for themselves, and and because they set high goals for themselves, they set themselves up to be disappointed, and then. Because they try so hard, they get in the way of allowing the meditation process to work. So I do see a lot of people who, uh, that's their problem, they try too hard. Less often I see, uh, but I still, still do encounter those people who, they're always looking for the easy way. They're always trying to find, you know, you give them meditation advice and say this is what you should do. Then you see them a couple of weeks later, and how's it going? And it's, well, you know, I, I was doing what you told me, but then I thought this might work a lot better. So this is what I've been doing since then. Yeah. <laughs> and they're always trying to find an easier way to do it. Well, there is no easier way to do it, because it's about as easy as you can get. If you don't try too hard, it's about as easy as you can but um, you do you do have to be consistent. You have to be diligent. And uh, if you are, you'll know if you're the kind of person that is always looking for an easier way. And if you are, recognize that. Say, ah, well, I'm the kind of person that's always looking for an easier way. So I'll be on guard against that, and I'll try to follow the instructions and see how they go, instead of always seeing if I can outsmart the system and find an easier, better way. trying to follow the sensations out of your nose. Well, I did for quite some time, and then I switched to um, the body because it was so difficult for me to... Okay, so you've, you've given it a really good try. It's not that you try it for a few days. And, okay. Well, then there's nothing wrong with using the sensations at the abdomen. What I was saying is that there are certain advantages to the sensations of the nose, all other things being equal. But yes, there are some people who, for whatever reason, that doesn't work as well. And the uh, sensation of rise and fall of the abdomen is a perfectly good alternative. So go ahead and use the rise and fall of the abdomen. 
but do the same things. You're trying to, to mentally mark the point where the sensations of the rise begin and where they end. Notice any pause. Mark when the sensations of the fall begin and where they end. Uh, notice the different qualities of sensations that occur during the rising phase and during the falling phase. So you can do everything else. Really, the only difference between the two is that this is a, in terms of the kinds of nerve endings that you have, and the amount of mental, uh, amount of cortex that's devoted to interpreting those signals, uh, that if, if this functioned equally well, then you would have more sensitivity there in the long run after a period of training. But if it's not there, don't worry about it. Use this. It will work perfectly well. But the nose is very small compared to Um, well, it, with both the abdomen and the nose, sometimes there is a variation in the size of the area that presents itself to awareness, and that's fine. But with the abdomen, um, usually an area about the size of your hand, but there's nothing exact about that. If you use the, the, the sensations at the rise and fall of the abdomen, you'll find that there's an area when they're, where they're quite clear, and then there's an area beyond that where they quickly begin to fall off. And so you just, you, you pick an area that is, you can really comfortably focus your attention on and go with that. So, uh, and, and don't worry if it's larger or smaller or higher or lower than what I'm indicating. But what's typical, what I, I, I'm pretty typical, I think, of most people, is it's, it's usually just above the navel and it's, it's an area that maybe not quite as big as what you cover with your hand if you put your hand on. Any other questions? Yes. Well, the same principles can be applied to all of these different practices. Now, there's so many different inside practices that you need to tell me what you're referring to, okay? But can you describe the specific practice? Right. Well, something I often do is uh, um, kind of like questioning uh, certain kind of perception, you know, you know why is that for sure? But, um, you know, for example, I will be teaching a class, and I thought, okay, well, that was a good class, but 
is that really a good class? Or so this student could be annoying? Or is that really annoying student? Or is that perception really as real as it sounds like? It appears to be. Um, they're fairly kind of mundane, mundane reflections. So you're talking about doing meditation where you're actually reflecting on things like, that happened like, previously. Yeah, outside of the practice. <coughs> so it sounds like in your system, I, well, I don't quite have a, a sense for how the, the daily sort of mundane insight just about practices or reflections will fit into the stages. Well, I, I can explain that and then we can come back to your original question. Uh, I didn't really talk about reflection this weekend, but I think you've heard me talk about it before. Reflection is, is a practice in itself, and it's something that I would recommend that a person do daily. Uh, then we come, if you're going to reflect, what are you going to reflect on and how? And what you describe, this is something that would be a very valid subject for reflection. You're looking at uh, your perceptions and your emotional reactions to events that have occurred since the last time you did this reflection. But reflection is a different practice and the relationship between reflection and uh, this uh, samatha practice is that the more you do samatha, the more successful your reflection is going to be. Reflection is really in a sense that falls into that category of analytical meditations and contemplations because there's discursive thought taking place you know and uh, uh, so if you do the kind of practice that I'm talking about uh, you're going to reduce the tendency for mind wandering to occur during your reflections. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll reduce the tendency to zone out during your reflections. You will be, you'll become more accurately mindful of your emotional reactions to the events that you're, you're reviewing. Because, you know, you'll have already, you'll have the habit of being aware of the internal processes. And so when you call to mind an event that happened earlier, uh, you'll be more readily and easily aware of what is your present moment, here and now, emotional reaction to that reflection. So they're two different practices, but uh, they support each other. Well, the samatha definitely supports the reflection practice, but the reflection practice will support the samatha too, because if you do reflection, it helps to clear the mind a lot of the things that the mind might want to turn to when you do the samatha practice. You've had events that take place during the day, you've had emotional reactions to them. To some degree, they're as yet unexamined and unresolved, and you sit down and put your attention on the breath. Well, you know, quite certainly these unresolved things are going to be part of what comes up. So if you do some reflection first, then that, that helps to clear the mind. So in that way, they support each other. But it's not a different, it's not uh, uh, another way of doing the same thing. And they, they are two different practices. Is that helpful? Uh, you know, with, a, with different kinds of practices that people 
give the label mindfulness or vipassana too. And these terrible labels because they're not really specific and they encompass way too much. But you can look at them in just simply in terms of whatever the practice is that I'm talking about, how will the correct performance of this practice benefit from the ways that these ten stages train the mind? And then take advantage of that. Make use of it as much as you can. So in the practice I talked about earlier where the noting practice, you can do these ten stages practice using the noting. What you do is it's exactly the same thing. Whenever the mind wanders, you experience that, that wonderful experience of waking up and coming into the present moment, positively reinforce it, and then go back to the monitoring of whatever it is you're monitoring in the noting process. And likewise, when you find a thought about something or other displaces this monitoring process, you know, you, so all the same techniques can be applied to different meditation methods because it, it's really, it, it's how the mind works and how we can make the mind work differently to serve these other practices. It's, that's, that's really what it all is at the bottom level. So that wasn't at all a question of trying to find an easier way. But it was a little bit of apples and oranges. But they do go together as a fruit salad if you do both. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. Okay. Since you mentioned that uh, reflections can sort of clear away distractions and help to proceed under long stages, I was just wondering if you could uh, kind of uh, say a little bit more about that. Because we all have this experience of mm -hmm. a certain kind of insight uh, to actually totally eliminate certain kind of distractions. And one example, something I kind of thought about was like when we were young, we are playing sports. <coughs> and we all thought we could play like you know, certain pros on TV or whatever. And, but then one day, like suddenly it occurred to you that, oh, you're never going to be playing like such and such. So you stop having those type of daydreams. So I was just kind of thinking, is there a particular way that you could carry out reflections so that, you know, certain recurring themes of uh, distraction? Yes, N not in the case of a, not not in the way of a simplistic formula, but this this is uh, the, the practice of reflection can help to clear away every kind of distraction. Um, you know, if if you if you look at the kinds of distractions that are coming up in your mind when you meditate, and for a particular person, uh, it might be a particular set of that uh, they might tend to worry about things. So there's certain things that they're always worrying about, and this is not 
only in meditation. This is throughout the day. They're, they're the kind of person that's always worrying, you know, well, well, will I get this done in time? What if that doesn't happen? What, what if, what if, what if? You know, and, uh, looking at these different future scenarios and making little plans to solve problems, 90% of which will never arise, right? Or uh, mixed in with that, uh, you might have some uh, anger and irritability may also be a part of that same meditator's personality. And uh, to the degree that it is, not only do they have uh, uh, thoughts about things that have happened during the day that uh, arguments that they've been in or things that they've been irritated about things should be different and so forth. But this is really occupying their mind on, on a regular basis all of the time. So when you see that something like that is occupying your attention, not just in meditation, but in the rest of your day, then that would be something that would be really good to change the mind's habit of. And reflection is a tool for changing the mind's habit by allowing you to become mindful of these things. You become mindful of them in reflection first, being the kind of thing that you were talking about. You remember the, the occasions upon which these things occurred during the day. If you reflect once a day, that you know, since the last time they occurred, uh, in the last 24 hours. And when you, you reflect upon them, try to examine them with as much retrospective mindfulness as you can. Also noticing your emotional reactions that are happening in the present due to the reflection. But plant the seed, the intention, to try to be mindful of these things in the same way when they occur. In other words, if you have a tendency to worry about things a lot, you set yourself the goal to try to be aware whenever you start having these worrying thoughts. And what the reflection will help you to do is to start to have more and more often that mindfulness when those worrying thoughts are occurring. Or if you're prone to irritability and argumentativeness and losing your temper and stuff, then when you reflect on those things, you're also setting the intention not just to be aware of those in reflection, but also to be aware of them at, their, at the time that they come up. Then, when you succeed in being aware of them at the time, that's when you're going to be able to, to do the most good work in terms of freeing yourself from these habitual patterns. When you find yourself worrying and you mindfully examine it, then you're going to see the pointlessness of most of the worry. You're going to see that it, it makes you feel physically and mentally in a way that you neither need nor want to feel. And it's consuming your time and energy, and it's affecting your mental state, and that in turn is having all kinds of other consequences. And similarly, you find the same kinds of things if you examined when you were, uh, your irritability and your argumentativeness if you examined it at the time it's coming up. 
And what happens is the recognition, the mindful recognition of these things is what begins to undermine their ongoing occurrence. But even before that happens, the fact that you reflect upon them before you meditate, the fact that you see them in a more objective way, removes from them the, uh, the energy that would otherwise thrust them into your awareness when you sit down and focus on your meditation object. I mean, they've already been examined and set aside. So they're no longer, you know, weighing in on, on the queue of important things to think about that are going to, you know, as soon as the mind's doing nothing more important than watching the sensations of the breath, and everything on that queue starts bidding for its opportunity to get looked at. So you've already looked at them and set them aside. Um, one of the, there's a, 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 another way that you can use this too. When you're getting ready to meditate, um, you just take the time to reflect on the things that are likely to be distractions. From your past experience, you look at your day, say, okay, that's probably going to come up during my meditation. That's the kind of thing that it usually does. And oh yeah, that is too. And you take it right there in your conscious awareness and, and, and you say, okay, I, this, I know this is going to probably come up, but if it does, I'm going to set it aside when it does. And hopefully it won't. And that will go a long way towards eliminating the tendency for it to come up. So you can... All of you can use a few minutes of reflection before you sit to help eliminate some of the distractions that are going that you know are going to get it in your way. And after you've been meditating every day for not very long, you have a pretty good idea of the kinds of things that are going to come up in your mind. If you do what I suggested of counting the ten breaths at the beginning of your sit, they'll come up then too. And you know what? You can when they come up. As a distraction, you can stop your counting for a moment and you can reflect on them right then and say, okay, yes, yes, there that is. And then you can mentally set it aside. These are all little things that I've discovered in my own practice over the years. You know, I'm glad to share them with you. And, and you'll find your own ways of accomplishing the same Any more questions? Yes. Can you talk real briefly on um, how things shift in your relationships with other people as we progress along the <laughs> How things shift in your relationships with other people? Well, <laughs> first of all, is that you as you experience more mental clarity and more mindful awareness, you become less reactive. And so your relationships with other people do become easier. And you, you're less prone to doing or saying things that uh, disturb the relationships that you're in of necessity. But the other thing that happens, and I don't know if this is what you're referring to or not, when you begin meditating and practicing the Dharma, 
your interests and priorities change. And you're going to find that a lot of things that you used to have in common with friends and family members and co-workers, you just simply don't have in common with them anymore. You're not really interested in wasting your time talking about those kinds of things or being concerned about those kinds of things. And the result of that is that, well, it can be, it can be confusing because after all, these are friends, you know, and you're finding it harder and harder to relate to them the way that you used to. And you don't want, uh, you, you, they're friends, you like them, you don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, you don't want to ignore them, but you just no longer have as much in common with them as you did before. The fact is that you're probably going to lose a lot of those friends. They're, they're going to fall away. And if you're aware and really mindful, you can make that falling away as graceful as you can. But it's still going to bother some of them, and it's going to bother you because it bothers them. The other thing that's going to happen is that you're going to find the need to find more of a different kind of friend, more of people who do share the same interests that you have. In other words, Dharma friends. And so you may, you may go through a period before you find those Dharma friends and before you establish the relationships and start, and start spending the time with those where you're, you're feeling a little bit uh, uh, uncomfortable, maybe a little bit lonely, maybe a bit of alienation. But it is part of the spiritual path. As you lose interest in those really quite unwholesome things that constitute the largest share of worldly preoccupations, uh, you're going to change your social set. I don't know anything except to be aware of that and try to make it happen as gracefully as possible. But you'll, you'll love the end result. <laughs> yeah. It seems a little ironic, doesn't it, though? Because um, as we continue our practice, To a degree, there, yeah, that's true, but there's, you're just one person and you have so little time and you're, you know, you, you, can't, you can't be everything to everyone and you won't even want to be, you know, or, or, you've already found that. But somebody who hasn't come to that place yet, there's some people that you can bring along with you. There's some people that when they start slipping into the habitual unwholesome ways of relating, uh, 
uh, gossiping, criticizing, dwelling on things that aren't really wholesome, that you can steer them towards something else and they'll come with you and that's wonderful. You know, that's, that's the real, that's the real exercise of compassion and skillful means is if you can bring those people with you. But there are those that you're going to find that, is, that they, they immediately sense that you're not, you're not into the gossip anymore. And they'll react with a kind of resentment. And you're not going to bring that along. And most likely you're not going to, you know, you're just going to have, that's the kind of situation you're going to have to find the most gentle and graceful way to let that relationship, you know, fall away. But I, I notice that very much. It's like, you know, it has a really good parallel to other circumstances. When somebody decides to quit drinking, all their friends they used to drink with are offended, and they don't know how to relate to them anymore. And so when somebody quits drinking, they usually have to get a whole new set of friends. And it's the same kind of thing that we go through in you know, our spiritual development because we want to be and we need to be around people who inspire us in, uh, and uh, people who share our, our interests and our ideals and our desire for practice. We need that. That's the kind of companionship we need. And not only do we not need, we, we don't want and we feel uncomfortable with those people who keep trying to pull us into unwholesome ways of behaving and speaking and so forth. So we only can do what we can do. And maybe when you become fully awakened, you can go back to some of these other people and do something else. Maybe not. I don't know. The toughest ones are family, because you can't let family fall away. And if you've got brothers or sisters or parents or people like that, and the basis of your past relationship with them is uh, something that you're no longer interested in relating to them in that way, there you're going to have to put some work in. You have, you have more responsibility. You have more, uh, there's more of a basis in love and compassion. So you'll need to work to find a way to resolve the problems there. You can't just let them fade away. Well, I mean, you can, but only in the last resort. 